podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Hello, welcome to the Five Year Plan podcast. Hey, hey, hey qualified, hooray! <laughs> well, Kevin, you know what it is, and I well, forget to say this recently. It's an isolation podcast. Isolation. Isolation. Uh, uh, I think you'll find the Guardian voted it the uh, Joy Division's tenth best ever song just just today. Yes, we were tweeted about it, so that's what yeah. reminded me because I'd be forgetting to say isolation. Um, I and, thought I thought you were doing Fascination by Alphabet. Oh, actually, that's way more in my wheelhouse, Chloe. That is <laughs> much more me than uh, the isolation song. Um, Your wheelhouse? What's the what's I a wheelhouse? I don't know. I thought that's what grown-up people said about. <laughs> um, let's introduce the guest, uh, Kevin Dace here. Hello. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, great, thank you. Fine. Too good, hot, good. but other than that, it's great. Uh, let's not get into that. Uh, Chloe Pets is back. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. I always have such a lovely time. Oh. Fantastic. It's a pleasure to have you back. And returning for the first time in God knows how long, first time doing an isolation podcast with us, it's the one and only Dr. John Curran. JC, how are you doing? JD, it's an honour to be here. Thank you very much. Beautiful. Absolutely we've, ne- beautiful. we've never had a sponsor like you, John, you know that. I know, I know. Yeah. I feel, I feel yeah, that, yeah. you know... The yeah. Athletic are great. Yeah, I've the phone. No, no yeah, one's yeah. got anything. No one's got anything against the Athletic, John. The Athletic, I know, great, but I, my embroidery and tapestry needs are going unfulfilled, and I just just miss saying your name, John. It's just, I, just, well, I see. I, I saw my sponsorship a bit like the Athletic or the KFC, right? I was the Morleys, <laughs> you know. And as far as I'm right, Stormzy talked about Morleys, didn't he? Not KFC. Yeah. So you know, so I've got some credibility. Fair point. Yeah, very true. Although we do love the athletic, I need to get that in. Although I don't think they listen to this bit anyway. Um, let's talk about Palace's two-nil defeat to Man United on Thursday night. Which Kevin? Yes. Do you know? Do you know who'd like to hear about the Man United's two-nil defeat? Christopher, a random patron. Oh yes, they Ooh. would indeed. Yeah, they a random would patron indeed. would love to be involved in that chat. They would absolutely kill for it. Yeah. Uh, and the random patron this week is after a drum roll, please. Lucas Darden. Hi, Lucas. Hey, Lucas. <laughs> and you can join Lucas and all the wonderful people that are our patrons at patreon.com forward slash FYP podcast. Right. Uh, Palace nil, VAR 2 was the final <laughs> score on Thursday, Kevin. Uh, yes, it is our sixth defeat on the bounce. But after hmm. we did the post-Villa uh, pod, we were just desperate for a decent performance or something to take away from this game. And I think it's fair to say, not only did we get that, we were actually very unlucky not to come away with anything. What was your 
overriding reaction to the performance? I almost cried at, at James Endicott's plaintive message on the WhatsApp group that I, I don't want to live in a world like this anymore where a goal <laughs> like that is disallowed. It's like, it's like James, come back to us. It's fine. It was, um, you know, on the, on the last pod, we, we said, let's not talk about the AR because it had nothing whatsoever to do with the terrible, shocking, risible yeah. performance. Yeah, it was a wrong decision. And with hindsight, now that they're back in my good books after last night, uh, I'm, I'm cross, I'm retrospectively cross about that decision again now, to be perfectly honest. But we were, you know, the, the penalty, it's, there's no there's no two ways about it. The other way around, that's a penalty. If that's a foul on the Man United player, it's a penalty, full stop. And the offside, and this is my, one of my big issues with VAR, is that it's, it's both factual and judgmental. So at one end, you've got a, a matter of fact by a millimetre, by not even a millimetre, where, where they're going, right, OK, we're using this space-age technology and he's offside. And by the way, whatever happened to giving the attacker the benefit of the doubt, which is always the guideline, the attacker gets the benefit of the doubt, that, that is, we've, we've benefited from that, to be honest. Their equaliser at Norwich, one of Jordan's goals earlier this season. We've benefited from those tiny margins. But it, it just drives me up the wall that you've got this, you're making judgment calls at one end and fact calls at the other. And that judgment call was wrong. You, it, you had three ex-Man United players on BT Sport last night, all of whom said it was a penalty. And, and the bit where I nearly lost my shit, seriously, and it gets, it's, it's been two years since they had to say to me, Dad, they can't hear you. Stop shouting at the television. <laughs> when when Peter Walton, ex-referee, said, well, yes, it is a foul. It's definitely a foul. But the referee hasn't got the luxury that we've got of looking at it from several different angles. Of course, that's what VAR is. <laughs> literally, yeah, yeah, a, literally what VAR is, is a monitor on the pitch, you dick. Of course, he's got the option to do that. It was a penalty. There's no two ways about it. And, and again, people go, oh, Wolf's reputation goes before. And nonsense. It was a stonewall penalty. It would have been given even if it was the other way around without a doubt. The VAR one, the, the offside one, you can't do anything about it. That's one of the reasons I, I hate VAR and I always will because that's just taking fun out of the game, basically. And it's just, it makes it a defender's game. And the sad fact is that it was the opposite of the Villa game where we deserved something out of that game last night. And I don't know where it came from. It's, it's frustrating that we can't replicate that week after week. But two all would have been a fair result against a... What a good side Man United are. What the, the mm. players they've got. The two goals they scored, you could argue that Martial, yeah, our centre-backs were weak for the second goal, but they were they were classy goals. They were a good team. And we deserved a point, and we were robbed of that point by VAR, that, without any doubt about it. Yeah, when you're saying if it happens to a Man United player, it's a penalty. I think if it happens to Jordan Ayew, or probably literally any other Palace player, yeah. I think it's probably yeah, a penalty, yeah. given that Ayew seems to win a lot of fouls that Wilf doesn't get. I but, I do think there is an irony that I would say Jordan Ayew is, um, as much as I love him, much more of a dishonest player than Wilfred Zaha is. <laughs> and that, that's what I love about yeah. Jordan Ayew. Jordan Ayew's gameplay is he, he gets his body between the man and the ball and then he looks to fall over. Yeah, and it, yeah, yeah. it works a treat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, he's, he's, very, he's very good at it. But the, the thing is, Chloe, that um, we said that after the Villa game, well, if the Sacco goal goes in, we probably go on to win. It changes the game. The penalty against United literally changed the game because the ball went down the yeah. other end and that didn't go out of play because I was waiting for it to go out of play mm. and then to then go back and look at VAR. I assume VAR looked at it anyway. And um, United scored and we've gone from potentially being 1-0 up to 1-0 down. And we had a question from Nigel mm. Campy who says, Hi, Nigel. nobody has pointed out that the referee's position for the penalty, he can't even have had a clear view for the on-pitch decision. So, 
yeah, that goes back to what Kevin said. That would indicate surely he has to have a look at it then, because even he's not up. It, the, the whole penalty thing for me was just a complete shambles. Um, yeah, I think I think the argument, the only argument that I heard for the VAR not going back was that it wasn't clear and obvious. Um, but every one of us, everyone in the studio. <laughs> Peter Walton sat there and said, yeah, it's a penalty. So if the only guy that's saying it's not a penalty is the referee, then it's clear and obvious. Yeah, but the off- what wasn't clear and obvious was the offside. If, you, if, you've, got to <laughs> yeah. take, if you've got to take three minutes to, to rule out that that's offside by a millimetre, that's not clear and obvious. And, and nobody, John, like in American sport, if you said that's, you know, or in cricket even, when you go, we'll go back to the umpire's decision, that's the on-field decision, it's a goal. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like the, the, the first rule of VAR should be, and the Villa one is exactly the same. If none of the opposition appeal, then don't check it. None mm. of the none of the Man United players appeal for offside. None of the Villa defenders appeal for for handball. So that first of all, that's one criteria gone. And it's we need some sort of John, some sort of in between thing where they just go right. Referees call. That's it. It's too marginal to change. I, I think yeah. it. I think it needs to be. If lines need to be drawn, then it's not offside. I think it should yeah. be. What's it look like with the naked eye? If it's a glaring obvious yeah. uh, uh, error, then then take it back. But like, and, and the thing is, like as you say, it has gone our way a couple of times this season, and it is really fun when you know West Ham was was a great experience this season where IU's goal got disallowed, and then it was marginally onside. That was an amazing experience, but I, I don't think it's worth feelings like last night where you just think that's not fun. I, I'm just not enjoying it anymore. I, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I think I think Selzy mentioned this on the post-match pod. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, if you look at the offside thing, you know, they're going to introduce, I think, different rules. I think yeah. that maybe it might be something about you have to see the green or the grass in between the two players. I think it will morph and mature into that. I also agree with Selzy. I'm in principle pro VAR, and it will take time to to get right. However. And this is a big however. There's a dimension to VAR that I think is having issues specifically from a cultural point of view in this country. Mm. And there's something about uh, how many referees are in the in the booth watching the VAR? Is it two or three other guys who are kind of who are doing the viewing? I, I don't know how many. But well, it's about, we're told it's, it's one, aren't we? But well, okay, no, so it depends how many games because because right, so, all, all the games are going to Stockley yeah. Park. So. so so basically, it's either another one or another two blokes watching the, the making the decisions, right? And then you have to actually say, Premiership referees, I don't think are very intelligent. I don't think they're actually very intelligent human beings. Um, and I'm you know I'm going to put this down on the line. I think they've got an issue around Zaha being South London black. Um, I think that that all plays into it. I wouldn't be surprised. I hate using this term unconscious bias because I think it's bullshit. But I think that there is this kind of reasoning that even through technology that they can still weep kind of get through a crack and give an absolutely absurd decision. Now, when I first saw the penalty, I said to my mate who I was watching it with, that's not a penalty. Straight away, I said, that's not a penalty. And then he saw the game, uh, 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 you know, and then I thought to myself, so why, why did he not go to the screen, looked at it, and then not give, if he not, didn't give the penalty after looking at the screen, that's fine. He's still wrong, but it's the referee taking it, a sole decision, and is accountable. And I'm happy with that, okay? I've got, you know, no problem with that. 
so my my question is why does he not use that technology and so i thought it through actually i stayed up all night because he would literally be showing his backside and his ass and the tv camera would be on so his his basic narcissism which most of the referees are they like they look like the police and the police are narcissists right so they, they so they basically he's not on tv his ass is on tv and he doesn't <laughs> want to look like an ass so that must be one rush the other thing is what i'm going to really protect referees here they've also got a lot of other technology that they have to use okay a lot a whistle <laughs> right and the spray and, and the spray some freudian wet dream that they keep on spraying out right so I think we're being unfair on referees. There you go. That's my take. You, this is why. This is why I love having John on the podcast. John, you, 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 no other guest says that. You make two points there, and sometimes, John, that's one of the reasons we we miss you so much because you are deliberately contrary, and you pick you get, <laughs> you get these theories out of those. But the two people who agree with you are FIFA and UEFA, who are both absolutely furious at the way VAR is being yeah. used in in uh, the Premier League, and have mm. called the Premier League to account for that. And have said next season you've got to start using the monitors. The referees have got to make decisions, and not only are referees vain, and I've met quite a few of them, John. They've got huge egos, and what the referees are doing with VAR yeah. is protecting each other's ego, without a doubt, because they don't Definitely. want to be Definitely. seen to be making mistakes publicly. Umpires, for some reason, in cricket, have come to terms with it without without any doubt. Maybe because they're older, maybe because they're all ex-professional players. I don't know, but referees have got a massive ego, and for the most part. Referees in Stockley Park who are tend to be less experienced referees, than, and there, there are times when you've got ten games on at a time. We've got Australian refs flown over to do the VAR stuff. They're not going to. If you've got a referee like Mike Dean, then you know a, a, a new kid referee is not going to tell Mike Dean he's made a mistake. No. Simple as that. You know, I, think I tell you, Australian referees need MAs and PhDs as well. In you know, so there's a kind of there's a whole different level. I I, I totally agree, and I think that there is a, there's a complete issue with the quality of the referee and how that now is being mirrored within VAR mm. is my main concern. Yeah, yeah. Not VAR on it on its own. It's 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 how the kind of that's that kind of poisonous culture of referees in this mm. country. Um, they don't. They don't love the game. They, they you know, they, they're not like NFL referees or NBA referees. Who are completely, the passion there, refereeing, is so obvious mm. when you watch a game. You don't feel any passion of a Premiership referee that they love the game of football. That's why the, th- the thing is as well with the, ref- the the reason why they will they will happily overturn the offside is because like, on the screen they're going to say, "Look, I'm sorry about this. It was a millimeter offside." The reason they're, they're overturning so few penalty decisions, red card decisions, is because, again, we come back to it. So facts, they're happy to deal with facts because they can show facts on the screen on their little funny little lines, but they can't they can't explain what, why they're ter- overturning a decision. And they've got to face that referee. Sometime in the next week, that referee is going to turn up and say, what, did you overturn that decision? And they'll go, because you got it wrong. And then they're not going to do that. And I wonder if it goes back to a conversation similar to one that we were having when I was last on the pod. And again, I really, I don't want to generalize here. Um, so I will caveat this with the hashtag not all men. Um, but I, I do think that there is, there is something unique to the ego of a straight white man mm-hmm. and largely uh, those are the people that are represented within uh, the officials, and yeah. um, and and I think we could remedy that by representation. I think 
women in there. You know, we, obviously we've got Sean Massey and I think she's absolutely brilliant and a real hero of mine. But I think if we had black people in there as well, um, then it's going to temper this very sort of um, straight white gaze that people and, and and John you say you 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 disagree with uh, unconscious bias as a concept I personally think it's something that we all suffer from and it, you know it's it's only when there's someone else there to sort of moderate your unconscious bias because they have a different set of unconscious bi- biases I totally I totally agree with Chloe about the the variety I mean at the moment we are going into this ritualistic world of black lives matter and everyone taking the knee every referee's white yeah you, do you, you know so this is kind of perversion for seven, for however many seconds. And then we see the, uh, you know, I, I, I agree. I've just, I've, I've kind of half another, um, what I've been asking is this question, how can VAR allow for, let's use that term unconscious bias. I would give it a stronger term, but how, how, oh. it, can allow, how it can allow that to seep through into those decisions. Mm. And that's where accountability has to be. Chloe's point about, <laughs> you talk to, I, I've, I've spoken to people in the PGMOL, Mike Riley in particular, they all say that Sean Massey-Lloyd is the best official they've got. With that, they, they, they trust her judgment implicitly. And then you say to them, then you say, well, when, when's she going to be a referee? And they go, well, and uh, there's, there's, there's other issues. It's not, it's not just about how good she is. Yeah, we're not quite sure whether we're, we're ready for a female referee yet. And then you go, where are the black referees? Well, because young black men want to play football. They don't want to be a referee. And, like, and again, so you end up with a, an identity kit group of referees who are all men of a certain age who have never played the game who are probably from Hertfordshire most of them and and don't know people like Wilf Sahar and assume as John said earlier on that he's probably going to be the villain of the piece against one of those nice lads from Manchester United who all look so clean cut and Scott McTominay's lovely and tall and blonde uh, yeah blah blah yeah so there is and there, these things do go on you can't and you also you can't I remember uh, talking to Graham Pohl about this and he said if you're refereeing Man United it, it's, it's not 50-50 it's got to be 60-40 before you give a decision against Man United Liverpool because you know the shit you're going to get from on social media or from Alex Ferguson back in the day you know you, 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 you know that you've got to be doubly careful refereeing those teams and it's as simple as that <laughs> I- and I think maybe, I, I think it's a chicken and egg thing where, like, if you see figures in a position of authority that look like you, you yeah, think yeah. it's more likely for you to be Definitely. able to get into those positions. But equally, I do think there is something about refereeing which is about um, unfalteringly believing in your own validity and your own opinion. And I think if you're a person who's, demography matches that that is reinforced by the world, you're going to have this sense of self, which is very reinforced. And just to pick up on what you were saying as well, Kevin, in regard to Sean Massey, it doesn't surprise me that she's the best because, because, you know, being a woman myself in football, oftentimes when I walk into a room filled with men, and, and even yeah. just like pints, ban- banter at the pub at pints, you yeah. have to be, you have to prove yourself doubly. You have to be doubly on it. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, obviously I'm so grateful to have you guys who are so wonderful and inclusive. But um, there, there are often times where, where I'm having to sort of like work doubly as hard to prove myself. Um, so, yeah. The, the players really respect Sean Massey Lloyd, not because she's a woman. They don't give her any, because she's a really good official. 
Mm-hmm. So they don't give her any shit. They, 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 she's not being treated especially. And, and in fact, one of the reasons I love her so much is because she was started the, the downfall of Richard Keys and Andy Gray because it was yeah. it was her that gave the offside that Richard Keys and Andy Gray said what she shouldn't even be in the game. She's got that wrong. And, yeah. she, and I was I was watching it with Jackie Oatley at the time at Fulham, and she feels very much like it was a, it was a press room full of men, and they're all going eh, doing impressions of the high pitched Jackie Oatley going. I think that was offside, and then it, it proves it was offside, and she got that decision absolutely right. And of course, that led to Richard Keys and Andy Gray, thank, two of the most reprehensible human beings you've ever met in your life, being taken out of that environment. And she's still there, but she's still she's no closer to becoming a referee than, than anybody else is. And it's it that that has to change for a start off. And it's I, the, I, yeah. Sorry, just one final thing on that. Like I remember, I was I was a young referee. I, I started refereeing when I was about 16, 17. And that happened when I was a young referee. And like Richard Keyes and Andy Gray have been, I didn't know anything about them really. All the, all I'd seen was their output. And they were a couple of my heroes. And to hear that audio and then saying that about women was such a shock. And um, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just awful. And there is, you know, I'm saying a very basic thing to say there is a cultural problem in football. We all know that. Um, yeah. But it's good to sort of remember it and re-emphasize it. It's because they were so unpopular that the sound man deliberately left his mic up when really? they were safe. Oh yeah, yeah. Normally, in, you know, there are times in TV and radio when you're having a chat and you think, "Oh Christ, is the mic up?" Sound man left the mic up because he knew which way the, the conversation was going, and deliberately made sure it was heard by everybody. So get in. It proves anyway. James McCarthy. <laughs> I was going to say, it proves that there is, you know, we think in football that we have sort of come a long way and in many ways we have, but there's still so long or so far for the game to go really before we reach any sort of level of of equality at all. And it was the same when Troy came on, was talking about Black Lives Matter a few weeks ago. There's still a lot of work to be done. Um, Just finally on VAR then, because we did promise last week we wouldn't talk about VAR, but obviously we can't avoid it. Rory Dowd has sent us a question, Chloe, and I actually saw something on Twitter about this. So it was either Kieran or John was interested there talking about the number of decisions May United having unconscious bias. May United have had the most decisions overturned. in the, uh, overturned with VAR this season. The second team is actually Crystal Palace, or second or third with four. So Rory Dowd has said, are we hard done by, or is this VAR evening itself out over the season? Also, I thought VAR was there to stop the need to eat to even out over the season. Mm. I should have reread that before I came on. Um, <laughs> is it one of these things, Chloe, where, yes, we're going to get horrendous decisions against us, but it might just be one of these things that sort of evens out? But, but I think Rory's made exactly the point there, which is it shouldn't be that. It should, it's been implemented to get rid of the evening out process across the season. I, I think it has happened. I think I, I've sat on this pod and with friends after the Aston Villa game earlier on in the season and said, well, there'll be one, there'll be one later in the season that we hate. Like, don't, don't doubt that. Um, so, yeah. And what, uh, also what Rory has done there unconsciously is ruined our argument. <laughs> Thanks Rory. Basically, just basically pulled, the, <laughs> pulled the rug right from under our feet by pointing out that we've been beneficiaries of VARs. That's nothing. Let's forget that just for the moment. We were robbed. We were cheated. <laughs> the fact that we've robbed and cheated other clubs is neither here nor there, Rory. What are you thinking of? <laughs> Why did you read that out, JD, for the love of God? Because I put together the notes of this podcast five minutes before we started recording. <laughs> um, actually, JC, there is one more on the... So we talked about the penalty on the offside, which obviously if, you, if you're going by the lines on the screen was offside by the smallest margin. But we've had a question from Rob Leonard, and he said, when Peter Walton argued that VAR didn't intervene on the penalty decision, 
because it was subjective, surely the frame selection for the offside was subjective as well. You could see them mm. going through the frames to pick the best one that served their purpose. I've seen this before with other offsides, trying to choose the exact right decision or right point where the player kicks the ball. It's virtually impossible, isn't it? And that will determine mm. then where you look across the line. So doesn't that actually make VAR and all these things kind of unfold a bit? Yeah, I, I, I think that that's a really good question. And it's also a good example, if we just look at the offside, of the teething problems. And and I I, I totally agree, actually, with his point. Um, but I also feel that this hopefully will be ironed out this, this point, right? It's a bit, it, it, it kills the game. It, it, it's not fun at the moment, but if they can almost revert back to what the offside rule was, you know, and having that kind of distance, it's going to be so much more easier to clear up, right? The penalties, it's, it's a harder thing because you're thinking about contact, the ball, the body, all that kind of stuff. And you don't have the science, the grids to work that one out, right? But you've got two or three human beings looking at it and can make the decision. You hope they get to the right consensus. Well, so that I've, I think the VAR officials have been lucky that the grounds are empty because we were talking last night, Ed and I, there's a scenario whereby Villa and West Ham in the last game of the season could be make or break. It could be either one of those will, will go down. I think it's a very brave uh, VAR official who overturns a decision in that situation. And so far, none of the decisions have really made a big difference. We're playing football in a sterile, neutral atmosphere. It's a strange thing. And the VAR decisions are infuriating, but they haven't, you know, it, we're, we're fine. We're safe. So you, you, there's that, you don't get 100% agitated like you would do. You get 90% agitated. But if you were at Sellers Park last night and that happened, you, 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 you look at the problems. And I think that's something else that the VAR haven't they've never really, I think they take the cautious the cautious approach every time. Well, on, this, the VAR in England, they're in Stockley Park, aren't they? Or in yeah. Hounds, not in Hounds, Stockley, Stockley Park. Park. In other countries like Germany, is it Germany or Italy? They're actually at the stadium, aren't they? Are there sometimes... In Germany, they're at, they're at the stadium, yeah. But in Germany, nearly every decision is re- is referred to the the monitor. The ref, as it should be. The, the Premier League and the PGMOL here took the view that referring stuff to the monitor would take far too long and it comes back to the point I've just made. They have no trust in English football crowds not to kick off in the two minutes it takes for referees to stand watching a monitor, basically. So they decided that games, you know, they would rather have the odd wrong decision than games that lasted 110 minutes, basically. That's interesting. I didn't realise that's what you were getting at earlier. Because I think, Chloe, from, from my perspective as a fan, I actually wouldn't mind if the game went on next for five minutes if it was the right decision that it got to. I'm not too fussed about that. Do you think fans would care about that? Um, well, I mean, we've all been in the stadium when it goes on a bit long, but I think it goes a, it, it goes a lot quicker than when you're watching it on the telly because you've got that whole atmosphere and that whole build-up mm-hmm. and the will it, won't it. Yeah. Um, I think uh, there was a real turning point when Michael Oliver went over during the FA Cup and to, to send off Luca, And obviously it went against us, but it was him kind of taking ownership of the decision. And I also think it, it might solve that ego thing that we were talking about because, because it's not someone going, oh, mate, you're wrong. It's him, it's him going and showing and, and saying, oh, I made the wrong decision. I'm, I'm big enough to say that. Yeah. Just, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think it, it, 
placing ownership back in the hands of the actual official that is on the pitches. That was also the right decision. It's like when, uh, I think it was Bertrand that was sent off at the start of when Leicester beat Southampton 9-0. And the, the fans are going mad in the stadium. But when they see yeah. it on the screen, they go, oh, actually, that's yeah. straight red. And it's the same with the Luca one. You're going mad and you think, what, what the... And then you see it and you go, oh, yeah, he's right. That's, that's the right it decision. It happened with, um, yeah. with Obama Yang, didn't it? Where all the Arsenal yeah, players... Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. ...going mental. And then they yeah. looked up at the screen and was like, oh, yeah, that yeah. was bad. <laughs> you get that moment yeah. in the stadium where you get that, ooh, from all the crowd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, all right, we've, all right, we've done VAR. Let's move on then, Kevin. You mentioned him a minute ago, James McCarthy. Now, we've had a lot of questions in the last few weeks about these three DMCs that Roy likes to play in the middle and we, everyone knows he's not going to play an attacking midfielder in them the Max Meyer conundrum keeps coming up um, it's normally Luca, uh, James McCarthy and Kiate. on Thursday night it was James McCarthy instead of Kiate. and general consensus seems to be that that was McCarthy's best performance in a Palace shirt he, the midfield seemed to have a bit more bite, had a bit more energy. Oh. They were passing through the lines and forward rather than sideways. How much credit should we be given to McCarthy for that? I, without without being party to what Hodgson said to them in the days between the Villa game and last night, it, it's hard to say really because you, you don't know how much of a bollocking they got. You don't know how much of that was professional footballers going, we let ourselves down on Sunday, we need to respond. But McCarthy certainly added... It, it, 20%, I mean, energy, all those things that you said, McCarthy just added 20%. And right from the start of the game, you could see the Man United midfield going, hang on, this is not as, this is not quite as easy as we thought it was going to be. And then there is, there's been an element, when it's when it's Czech and when it's Luca, there's an element of the statuesque about us in midfield, we're quite easy to pass over. McCarthy was just everywhere. And again, yeah, we've talked about getting energy in it. And McCarthy's not young, but he brought, a, a passion and a commitment and an energy and he seemed to lift the other players and also I have to say up front how many times have we said on the pod this season it's like yeah great we know what we're doing at the back we know what we're doing in midfield that's our shape up front what what is our shape and last night is like what is our shape but it was deliberate because at times we were 4-4-2 at times we were 4-5-1 Wilf was joining with with uh, uh, Jordan with Ayu brain free sorry oh, I had a bottle of wine let's be fair uh, <laughs> this is my way of coping my way of coping with the heat uh, and it, it it just there was a movement and a and a variety of pass that what, what I haven't seen from Palace for. I mean, we saw hints of it in the Chelsea game, but last night I, I it was Man United were like watching a big dog that's been attacked by a kitten. It's like this is this is not quite going, and they really had to pull it out of the fire. And I, I just thought for ninety minutes we were we matched them, which is so frustrating when we for ninety minutes we we're so. Terrible against Berlin, against Villa, and yeah, you can ask bigger questions about attitude. But just last night was one of those nights where you just think at the end of the game, you just go, "We lost to a really good team, but we gave it a, a really good go, and we didn't deserve to lose." And McCarthy, I mean, it, for me, you would you would start him next season. I mean, that that just it just clicked. I mean, the, just the three of them just seemed to click, and it was. I don't know if Roy's been searching for permutations all all season, and suddenly that was the one that 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 worked, but. It was, it was a joy to watch at some stages, to be honest. Yeah, and the thing is, um, sorry, uh, was, that, was that Chloe? I missed it because I was yeah. looking at trying to Google how old James McCarthy is. He's 29, actually. Yeah. So you're right, he's not young, but that obviously makes him quite a fresh-faced Palace player <laughs> in the current setup. The thing is, Chloe, um, Bruno Fernandes and Paul Pogba in the last few weeks have been playing absolutely amazingly. And I think it's testament to the Palace midfield because they were very quiet last night. 
Um, and that I think that proves how well the Palace midfield did to keep, especially someone like Bruno Fernandes, who's been absolutely smashing it, um, to keep him quiet. Mm-hmm. And that proves what a good game they had. Yeah, and we seem to play, uh, be trying to play a little bit more on the front foot and a bit mm-hmm. higher up the pitch. Um, and, and also, I think them coming on to us suited us a lot more. I think we've said it, if we said it once, we said it a thousand times that we don't have the sort of players that can break down a team that put 10 men behind the ball. Um, but I think James McCarthy is the person that in our squad is most likely to do that. I don't think he's just sort of a, a combative little terrier that sort of runs around the field. I think his his range uh, of passing is is actually really good. And I think the Everton fans were saying that before we got him, that mm-hmm. he's, he's actually quite an expansive and, and intelligent, clever player. Yeah, and in fact, um, JC, if I can just end part one on this question from a Mr. Daniel J. Edwards. Hello, Daniel. Who said, um, when we play the big teams, it looks like the players seem more up for it and perform better than normal. Does this suggest there's a problem with motivation? And if so, is that not Roy's fault? Uh, it's off the back of, I guess, the May United and the Chelsea game, and obviously those poor performances against Villa and Burnley. I- I'm not so sure about this. And Leicester, I, I think there's more factors at play than just motivation. You've got fitness from players playing um, lots of games in this period. Uh, you've got formation changes, which Kevin alluded to there. Roy actually did change up a bit and apparently played Wilf through the middle so that he didn't have to play against AWB because obviously AWB got into the Palace team because he was so good against Wolf in training and actually try and put him up against Maguire and Lindelof. But what are your thoughts on this motivational thing from Daniel? Um, I, I think that there's maybe some truth in there. I think it goes back to Chloe's point about how we've found it very hard breaking down teams of our level. You know, uh, you know, all the teams have put ten players behind the ball. We haven't got that skill, and that's why we got Mac. That's why we bought Max Mayer was as a means of trying to find someone who can thread the ball through, and that hasn't worked. So, um, I think what was interesting about the Chelsea and Man U games, Zaha played more central than on the wing on both those games and looked much more dangerous, which was interesting. So he could drop back as well and get the ball, and there was a bit more fluidity, and that stumped them. Um, so that, that was definitely, definitely case. I was really surprised at how attacking we were yesterday. So I think in the first, I think it was in the first 90 seconds, we got the hay saving a, a shot on target. And mm. I was like, what, what, what's going on there? So, <laughs> and there's all, there also is something about, I think that this, that this kind of false assumption about playing the three um, defensive midfield players and James MacArthur being one of them, not McCarthy, but MacArthur isn't a defensive midfield player, right? But what, what I think has always been lacking is a midfield player, defensive or not, who can actually ping a 40-yard pass. James McCarthy is the only player that can do that in the team. And he also moves the ball quicker. And he's also a little bit of a bastard as well. You know, yeah. you know, it isn't just a Terry. He goes and he says things about his history and stuff. I think that scares them, right? So, 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 so he's got. And I'm not, you know, for me, he should be kind of the baseline of what we have in midfield. Someone who can pass the ball, or you can have then Luca purely as breaking up play. That's fine. But Luca's not the player who can ping the ball forty yards consistently. He did it four times in the first half, and each one went out. Mm. Right, you know, so I, I think I do think we up the game. You know, I think Zaha's performance has been really good against Chelsea and Man U, and have been really not all that much otherwise. And that's an interesting. And I think maybe that's because he's come in central, but also, you know, I think we're going to see the last two games of Zaha wearing a Palace shirt now. You know, mm. so we might as well be 
enjoying him playing central where he'll probably play for whoever he goes on to. JD, you know, I complained earlier about the question that ruined our rant with yeah. facts. Can I, throw it, can I throw in the fact about our motivation that we are still, apart from Liverpool, we've got more points than any other team against teams in the bottom 10. Yeah, there you go. So, so our actual record, it, it seems to us that we play better against good teams, but our actual, we're picking up points from the teams around us rather than from those those. I think maybe maybe the misunderstanding comes because I I fall prey to that definitely is that we we toil and toil and toil against these big clubs and have a lot of like no ball losses where we have the moral victories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But I'd just like to say about being put down always with um, Kevin's stats. It I still think Wayne Hennessy is an exceptional goalkeeper. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that is definitely time to take a break. Statistically, John, statistically, he's a great keeper, of course. (laughs) Let's take a break there so that we can edit that bit out from John. And after the break, we're going to talk about um, a player who uh, made an appearance last night, Tarek Mitchell. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome back to the Five Year Plan Podcast. Hey. Too hot. Uh, it's pod three. Four, it's never too hot. It's pod three forty four, and part two is an article from the Athletic, a world class team of writers covering every club, including the best coverage of Crystal Palace. They're a subscription based website and app, completely ad free, no ads, no pop ups, just brilliant articles. Welcome to the new home of football writing. And if you visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash FYP, you can start a seven day free trial and receive fifty percent off your yearly subscription. This week's article is actually one from a couple of weeks ago, but it's very apt given Tyreek Mitchell's appearance against Man United at left back um, coming on for the injured Patrick Van Arnholt. It's by Matt Wisdom. It's called Pierrick Mitchell Gordon. Can any of Palace's youngsters force their way in? And that Gordon, by the way, we know who the first two are, is a young lad called John Kaimani Gordon, mm. who is a striker, who it sounds like the club are very excited about. But on Tyreek Mitchell, um, who is a left back who we saw a few weeks ago against Leicester, and obviously looks like he might actually, Kevin, play the rest of the season in theory if um, if uh, PVA's injury is particularly bad. There's a quote here from Matt from the article. It says Hodgson was asked before the season about the possibility of involving youth players, and he said at the moment there is only one player who is standout who could possibly come in and we'd be happy to see him taking a starting position Matt goes on to say that player in question is likely to be Tyreek Mitchell his presence on the summer's preseason tour of Switzerland brought excitement to supporters but unfortunately he did get a torn thigh tendon which put him out for several months but since his return to fitness he's worked hard and impressed the first team management with his attitude He's particularly well thought of by Gary Issa, the academy director at Palace. Uh, and apparently Watford's Hayden Mullins, former Palace player, uh, now coach at Watford, is another who believed to have kept a close eye on him when he was in charge of the club's under-23 side. How 
impressed are you with Tyreek Mitchell, particularly that 20 minutes against Man United? Not an easy game to come into. Yeah, I mean, he looks, he, he slotted in. He, he looked comfortable on the ball. Uh, he's had 20 minutes against Man United now, which is what, before the game, you'd have said to Roy, for the love of God, apparently he's really good. Let, give him 20 minutes against Man United. Let's see what he can do. Uh, I think if, if PVA has got a dislocated shoulder, then that's a horrible injury. And it, mm. it might be well. The, the worrying thing about Matt's article is that, as we know from talking to Matt in the past, I don't think anybody knows more about Palace's youngsters than Matt. And it's slightly concerning that he thinks there's probably only one other than Tyrek who's who's anywhere near the first team, and that's Pirik, and we knew about anyway. But we, you have to remember that Roy didn't know anything about Aaron Wan-Bissaka. This is not a criticism, it's a statement of fact. Roy's 55 years older than these, than these youngsters. You know, Roy's, his, his mind's not on youth. He, he didn't know about Aaron Wan-Bissaka. He's admitted that himself. He didn't know who Aaron Wan-Bissaka was. We were short of seven or eight first-teamers before that Tottenham game. He went down to have a look at what was available and said that kid looks quite good. So Aaron ended up playing. That will be the circumstances by which Mitchell ends up playing. And as I keep saying, you'll never find out how good these kids are until you play them. It's as simple as that. And circumstances, unfortunately, conspired against PVA. But I think Mitchell will start for the, for the last two games. There's no reason why not. There's nothing to lose. Let him start for the last two games, see how good he is. And then who knows, we might start the next season with, with a 19-year-old uh, left back and, and Ferguson who's 20, 21 at right back and then after two weeks when we lose the first games 3-0 whatever we were saying we need some experience in this team what are we doing why are we playing kids get the old men back but get Wardy back so, sorry, so, so Kevin Kevin sorry just to statistically he's 20 not 19 to say <laughs> sorry yeah, yeah, well, well it depends when I was yeah fair <laughs> I've missed you I've really missed you Johnny you know <laughs> Chloe we've had a question here from Bloke Ocean hi Bloke <laughs> <laughs> Interesting name. Who says, um, seeing AWB surrounded by other young players, um, which I think was AWB tweeted a photo, didn't they, after the game of like great feedback at Palace seeing some like familiar faces. Do you think this will influence younger players to join an aging Palace squad? And they said, what are the chances of a teenager joining the FYP podcast team? Mm. How old is how old is Travis now? <laughs> no, he's way gone. He's, he's gone. Too old. Um, yeah, I mean, do you think that, Chloe, the path of AWB coming into the team, although as Kevin says, it was fortuitous, I guess, circumstances him coming in, will hopefully influence younger players now that we've got a Category 1 status to join Palace and maybe younger players like Ferguson to come in. Do you think it will create a path or do you think with Hodgson in charge, you know, an older player, an older manager who's traditionally picked older teams? that maybe that might not mean anything. Yeah, it worries me at the moment because I think uh, Roy is a very conservative manager and as we've said, AWB only came in because of injuries and, and, and Mitch was only coming in because of injuries now. I, I, I think Roy Hodgson's argument has been these players aren't ready and we don't want to cause more harm, mm. harm than we would good by exposing them too early. But... At the moment, there seems very little to lose because we are just sort of the excitement out of the season. We're mid, we're lower mid table, and and it, it, it's it's also a, a unique atmosphere in that there's no crowd in yeah. the stadium that could be getting on the players' back. Mm. Um, so f- for me, if if I was a player, like yeah, we've got category one, but I wouldn't be going to Palace because I'm thinking Roy Hodgson's not going to play me. He's going to play. Like some old bloke that that you know 
has a fall and gets it gets an injury from quite an innocuous one you know um so i, I don't know it's may i may i say that i i don't know if we're going to go on to this but i think it probably is time for roy to move on because i just don't think he's gonna don't drop that bomb on us chloe is that, is that too <laughs> controversial do you not want to engage in that we did we had a long chat about roy last week and we do we do, okay. we do get questions every week about about that and obviously heading towards the end of the season there are going to be more questions about that and if Palace lose the next two games even if we're unlucky in them or whatever or bad VAR decisions it is still eight defeats on the bounce yeah. I mean that is can I, can I ask sorry Claire because we I, we're going to have to have that conversation on the pod it's going to have to be the full pod because it, 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 <laughs> it trust me after losing to Villa it was because the, the hour after the Villa game, uh, I, I didn't want to tweet it because I was too angry. The hour after the Villa game, I thought it was time for Roy to go then, not yeah. not at the end of the season. And I've slightly changed my mind about that. But oh, wow. I'd, I'd quite like to ask John, though, from from an anthropological point of view, about, <laughs> just about you, for, just about the culture of youth. It's like, why is, you know, some countries in Germany, for example, partly because their broadcasting deals aren't massive. So they can't afford to pay for the biggest players in Europe. So they bring their own kids on. There seems to be a, a reluctance amongst clubs here. Unless Chelsea, for example, are forced to, there seems to be a reluctance amongst English clubs to put trust in young mm. players. And I'm, I'm kind of interest, interested in why there might be a reason for that. I think I think you've you've answered. I think if you look at Chelsea and Man U, Chelsea again because of the transfer and uh, kind of ban, but they are both trying to rebuild their squads with the, the, a new generation of players. Okay, so there's something quite exciting about that. Whether or not that as a trend will trickle down into other teams will be quite interesting uh, to be you know to to, ha- to have a look at. The fundamental thing about youth, right, where we are, and any team that's mid table below mid table. Unless you have got three or four youth or two youth players who you know are s- starters for the premier for a premiership team, um, you can't you just can't take that risk you, you, because it we're talking money here, right? You you, you seriously you, you you can't take that risk. You can bring in players. Of, blood them a little bit of 10 minutes here and there. Um, if you look at Norwich, they're bringing on a lot. There's a great Irish striker they've got, you know, young players, but they're all getting ready for the championship. Mm. You know, so, so they're kind of work, working them in. So I do, I do understand, I kind of understand why Roy isn't playing youth. We also don't have youth. I mean, we don't have enough good players. Um, you know, that that's, that's another reality, right? We don't have the striker that's going to come on and get that goal at the age of 17. And you can say, well, we've never tried it. So how do you know? But we just, we, we, we don't have that quality. So youth is massively um, risky. It's risky for the, for the club and winning, and secondly, it's risky for the individual youth player as well. Yeah, we did because, see. We, we did see though. Le- right? Leicester played a young lad called Luke Thomas in their last game, and he got an assist against Sheffield United and was man of the match. Yeah. He played very well. But the thing is, uh, we as uh, not fans, opposition fans, we see that player play. We don't know that player's journey. We don't know how long that player's been in the Leicester um, youth team, Leicester under 23. Yeah, yeah, Whereas yeah. We, we get to see all these Palace players and we get updates on them. So it's very different. I'm, I'm trying to use that as an example of, of a team going for a Champions League spot, by the way, using a youth team player. So it does happen, but it is quite rare. And the thing is, Chloe, and this comes up on the, the post-match pod quite a lot, which Chelsea mentions, and it's a very valid point. 
each, and I think Kevin says it as well, each place in the Premier League is two million, two and a half million or something. Two million, yeah. Two so million. obviously, yes, the season is pretty much over for us. But if we finish 14th instead of 16th or 12th instead of 13th, that is the money for potentially a backup left back or potentially an, you know, another midfielder next season. So there is an element of risk always with youth team And yes, I agree with that. I completely agree with that. But what we've just been speaking about in terms of Leicester is the public image of playing youth. And if we want to be attracting youth, a couple of those guys have come out and said, we should be playing. Like Palace aren't giving us a a route through to the first team. We need to, to overcome that. And I think that that probably balances out. Because the thing is, we're looking at going into these last two games and I would say sort of the general consensus is we might not pick up another point before the end of the season. So what is there really to lose? And I get it. I get you want to protect these youngsters, but they clearly feel that they're ready to come in and offer something to the team. So just give them that shot. And, it, and, and it, 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 sorry, go on, go on, John. Yeah, so, sorry, I think, sorry, Chloe. I didn't, um, I, I think there's fundamentally one reason why you have um, the youth team and especially a category A uh, you, you set up. You see that as making money, right? It, it's basically the you get you get youth players in as a means to make money. Um, you sell them on, and and that's no. But if you look mm. at Brentford, Brentford don't have a youth system. They've got a very mm. innovative system. They've got a B team, and they get all the mm. rejects from around only from around London to come in, and then they start developing them up. Mm. It's a different. Now, if they get promoted, I don't think they'll be able to maintain that. I think they will have to look at a youth structure as a means of then churning out players. I think there's a difference between youth and young players, mm. right? And if you look at Brighton, Brighton, for example, Brighton two games ago played a 20-year-old and a 21-year-old up front. The 20-year-old, Donnelly, the Irish player, was picked up by Lewis, Mm. non-league they had a 19 year old ex-chelsea youth player who refused to sign a contract with chelsea because he he didn't feel he was going to get the games playing as their right wing back so you had a 19 year old a 20 year old and Mm. a 21 year old with their top players on the bench they lost okay but they're safe so now that they're safe they can stay they brighten have got a sense of a philosophy. They're trying something out. They might get relegated next season, but they're trying a philosophy. Now, there's no point us playing youth unless we actually have a philosophy of what our football is. And our football at the moment for the last three or four seasons mm. is Band-Aid. It's, it, mm. it's cover those bloody cracks up, yeah. fill them up mm. with polyfiller, and just let's bloody well hope, mm. right? So, so I don't think we can have a rational conversation about youth until we know what the structure is. But also, John, we, and we have said this before, you talk about bringing young players through the ranks to sell them on. You can't sell them on if they're not playing for the first team. Mm. Yeah. We got we got 45 million quid for Aaron Wan-Bissaka because he accidentally got into the team. If, if we didn't have those injuries against Tottenham, he'd still be at our academy. We wouldn't have got he'd that been 45 one. million quid. For, he'd been, he'd been in League One. Yeah, you can't showcase players except on the pitch. Yeah, but, but it's, if, it's, if, if it's so fearful up at the top of the club uh, uh, around yeah, survival... Yeah and keeping in this division, yeah. the, the selling on youth and making profit, that's that's plan B. And the, yeah. uh, the other question is, we're cat A now, is our coaching staff for the youth that, that level of quality? At the moment, it's jobs for the boys, right? You could say. So, so have we got top quality, and can we attract top quality youth team coaches you would imagine that that would have been something that would have been reviewed but do you know in the what, process. Do you know, do you know what? Sorry, JD. You know what, John? It, it, this, this comes back to Chloe's question about Roy Hodgson earlier on, which we all kind of 
in an awkward middle class sort of way try to avoid answering and the thing with Palace is, is what we have got at Palace as coaches we've got nice people they're all they're all nice but and, and we've got a lot of ex-Palace but and, and we pride ourselves on that and, and we that stops us from asking the questions that, that stops us going are these the best coaches because as you say you can bring in really good kids, but if we haven't got the best coaches, and it's like going, oh yeah, but he's played Palace. He's a, he's a, yeah, no, and he's very funny. He came on the pod, yeah, yeah, but is he a good coach? You go, yeah, yeah, he's a great coach. How, do you know that? Uh, yeah, 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 sure. You'd he's imagine, a nice though, bloke. Kevin, if we've got a category one status, the the, the staff of, of course, there must but, be. But, John, but, but John's absolutely right, though. There is an element of. I think Enders used the word ruthless about there's a, there's a lack of ruthlessness it seems about Palace when it comes to it's almost like we've never fully come to terms with becoming a, a Premier League mm. club that we're still a slightly nice cottage industry <laughs> we're a pub team that's done well and we don't want to let people go or let people down and we don't want to f- scrap with other, and now we ca- we have to scrap with other clubs to attract the best players in but do we really want to do that do we really want to upset Brentford by bringing one of their and it, you kind of get the feeling that we don't. But John's point, the most important point is there's no point bringing young players in unless you've got the structure for them to fit into, to, to work their well. And the other thing as well is, that let's, not, let's not forget as fans, and I kind of jokingly refer to this, Chloe, is that if we start next season, say you know, say Roy decides to go and say Scott Parker comes in and say we start the first game with five youngsters, like Frank De Boer time, and we lose the first game 4-0, and then we lose the second game 3-0, the, the Palace fans, will, will. it won't be long before they're saying, what the f- why have we got all these kids in? And you'll be saying, yeah, you wanted this all the kids in. This is exactly what happened with the ball, where we we, we had an attempt at be, be having a philosophy and um, doing something a bit outside the box and going for sort of a young foreign manager. And But, but that's why, as uh, I think John makes an excellent point, I don't think we can just get young players in as an antidote to our aging team. It has to be yeah. a structural thing. And that's, mm. and obviously we don't want to go into the Roy thing. So please allow me, like I have loads of caveats for wanting Roy to go. Et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it's not just a simple, it's not just a simple Roy out, but I, I do. I, I think like we, we need a younger, more aspirational manager to come in to manage a younger, more aspirational team, not some guy that sort of had an amazing career, but is at the twilight mm. of his career and sort of ready to wind down. Well, it's a bit chicken and egg, mm. isn't it? Do you Does the team get youthful and then the manager I, fits that, or does the manager get youthful yeah. and then the team fits it? Like, what um, way do you do that? I, I, I think this quickly, the... the, the, the the Roy thing will be more, if he stays or goes, will be more about the organisational structure and culture of the club, right? The mm. fact is that Roy has not been backed in any in any sense. He's not mm. been allowed to develop, right? Now, it yeah. might be too late. It, it, it's almost like Roy might be institutionalised in this is what Palace is. So he <laughs> has to move on. Yeah. So anyway, Ty- Tyreek Mitchell. <laughs> the, 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 thing, the thing I always think back to is all the Fulham fans saying, like, careful what you wish for, because they all wanted Roy out. And then mm. when he went, there was a yeah. complete decline. So, like, again, all my caveats, blah, blah, blah. Like, Roy has done the best that he can with what he's got. But I just hope that we're given a lot more. Mm. <laughs> and that includes a new manager who is backed. Yeah. It, it, it's a, that's why, that's why it needs a bigger, because it comes back to the age old question. If the limit of your ambition is staying in the Premier League, then Roy is, yeah, is the best manager you mm. want. But eventually 
as we keep saying, if you if you if you keep swirling around the plug hole, eventually the plug hole will bring you down. It's like if it, I, I think we should be setting our sights slightly. I don't think we should be spending millions to get into into Europe or the Champions League or whatever. But it, there, there does come a time when you go, can we can we break the shackles a little bit? Can we maybe at home look to get three points every time rather than protect the point that we've got? Which is and it comes back to the word Chloe used about Roy is his approach is conservative and and for my generation staying in the Premier League is absolutely enough. Of course it is, but. Yeah, we've got a new stance. Steve Parrish is trying to sell the club. He's trying to sell the club as the second oldest club in 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 the world. Essentially, we've got a new stand to fill. You, you're not going to sell. You're not going to fill that new stand with that product. Essentially, it's not a word I use lightly. But if you want to attract people, you know, we we've been talking about this in the price of football. If broadcasters had their way, they wouldn't show Palace matches. They have to show a certain. They have to show Palace matches, but, but no broadcast. BT, BBC One, but Sky. If they had their way, they wouldn't. They wouldn't go anywhere near a Palace game because they know, for the most part, no one's going to watch it. For, from that point, if you looked at the commentary, the BT guys um, before the game at the, the for the Man U game, the whole conversation, the, the the praise for Palace was like, what a shame. We've got the COVID nineteen that you can't have fans because yeah. if, if you if you're a player, that's the one place you want to play. The crowd are incredible, but nothing about what an exciting setup Palace are. What yeah, nothing yeah. about you know Good where point. we could be going and what we could be doing. Not not like Europe and but just like there's something happening there in the club. And we we've kind of you know that that's that's been gone since the first season. Or maybe not wrong. Maybe with Kabai and Loftus Cheek we had it right. Yeah. But but mm. from from that period it's completely 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 gone which is which is very sad you know we don't we don't have that playing identity at the moment anyway if you go to the athletic.co.uk <laughs> forward slash fyp uh you can get a seven day free trial and see 50 of your subscription and read that article from matt and many more after the break question from our listener <laughs> <laughs> are we ever running It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome back to part three of the Puppet Plan Podcast. Yay! Hey. Hey. Pod three forty four. It's question time. We are overrunning so much, thanks to my poor presenting skills. That we're going to have <laughs> one question, and then we're going to do a quick preview of the Wolves game. And the question this week is from Lee Ayres. Hey, hey Lee. Hey Lee. The old Lee. And it's about Kevin. You were just talking about this off air. The potential potential reopening of stadiums to fans. And he says, how can a partial reopening of sellers work with season tickets? We have a block of four. The guys behind us have similar. I'm guessing that's often the case. We sit together, but not all tickets will be from one bubble. Now, I don't know much about these potential reopening rules. It sounds like it's going to be limited. Mm. There's, there's talk about potential raffle for, t- for season tickets. How is it going to work? And what are your thoughts on it? And it, it sounds like October, doesn't it? It's yeah. Well, be- f- first of all, JD, don't, don't mention that we were chatting off air. That just destroys the magic 
Basically. Just, I think that's a 344 pods. Just the, pop the, the magic's gone, mate. Yeah, the, the, at, at the moment, as far as we know uh, from research we've done on other, but the, the season, next season is due to start on 12th of September. Uh, the government, whether it's coincidence or not, have announced today that they're trying to get, they're looking at working parties to get crowds back into sport. And of course, it being a Tory government, the first experiment is uh, at Goodwood Racecourse. So God forbid they should miss out on the Goodwood Festival. Um, the Premier League have got a working party because they're talking about 30 to 40% capacity for newer stadiums, 20 to 30% capacity for older stadiums. So that would be us. Uh, how it would work, I mean, for a start, there'd be no away fans. I don't think there's going to be any away fans next season uh, at all. Possibly vaccine-dependent, maybe. In an ideal world, possibly from the FA Cup, that might happen. But initially, there's not going to be away fans. How it works, the, the big discussion, apparently, for the working parties is whether it's safer to have people sitting diagonally or sitting next to each other with a seat apart. Uh, so if you're looking at 6,000... Palace fans, so that's, I don't. It, it's going to be up to each club to do it. It's difficult. I, I don't think there'll be catering. It's certainly at Sellers Park in the in the Alpha Weight, you won't be able to have catering because it's too narrow down there. The, the turnstiles won't be open. They'll be going through gates. I imagine there'll be electronic ticketing, so they don't have to do track and trace. But whether the club decides to do to just say, look, the the people who have had the season ticket for the longest, the first six thousand people, they they are season ticket holders. Whether they say out of the 18,000 season ticket holders, you can go to one game in three. How how they do it, I don't know. I suspect if it, any sense of bubble or family, I think, will have long gone by by the time crowds come back into football. I suspect you'll still have to wear masks, but it's 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 a, it's a start. And it, again, it's driven by the broadcasters as well, who are... I, I'm still convinced that the Premier League came back quicker than the Premier League probably wanted to in terms of safety because of the demands of broadcasters and because broadcasters are saying, if you don't start putting football on soon, your your broadcasting money is going to be you know, ravaged, basically. So I think, yeah. it's, I think it's coming from them. They're, they're desperate for an atmosphere. This ludicrous nonsense of the fake atmosphere just isn't working at the grounds. In terms of overseas rights as well, one of the reasons people pay so much money to watch the Premier League is the atmosphere. Um, so they, they're desperate to get it back. So I, 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 it, I think October's optimistic. I, I, much as I'm desperate to get back to Sellers Park, uh, I, I would happily go to Paulson's Arms and then walk to Sellers Park and watch it on a big screen, to be perfectly honest, because I want, the, I want the experience, I want the atmosphere. But even yeah. I think, and I, I disagree completely with Ali and Ed about, I'm, I, I think you have to drive back through these things. I think you do have to get back to some sense of normalcy, but I think it's too optimistic to expect football to have fans back in by the 1st of October, to be perfectly honest. I, I applaud the ambition, and, and if it can happen, it can happen, but it's not that far away, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it will creep up on us. I sit in the main stand, so the idea of having no one next to me in a bit of legroom is absolutely glorious. Mm. I would love that. <laughs> But the thing is, Chloe, it will obviously be down to people. There'll be a lot of Palace fans happy to come back. There'll be a lot of Palace fans. And I think I'm probably in the latter camp. Probably still not sure about mm. going back, how they feel about it. I went out for a haircut this week and it's the first time I've left the house in about four months. And even then, I was very nervous. How would you feel if you got the option to go back to Sellers and it was socially distanced and you're sat two or three away from each other? Would you do it? I think it's, I think it's hard. Like, I think for me personally, I go to Palace 
and sit on my own and then I'll meet like you guys and, and other mates to at half time for a pint and a pint before and after which wouldn't change much i'm quite happy i'm a bit of a sort of cantankerous old shouty man when i am um, getting a football <laughs> like i like i like the anonymity and just being able to sort of like shout into a crowd of people and not think about the consequences but i think i'm unusual in that because it's going to be hard to get a um to get chance going and i feel like it would just be yeah. it would just be doing it because yeah, we, we feel like we need to like get some semblance of normality, but actually do we really need to do that? I feel like I'm rambling now, but I, I basically think it will be weird. I kind of had it with pubs where I was at my parents in Kent and I was kind of like, when I come back to London, I'm not going to go into pubs. And then as soon as I was like, or around my mates, I was like, oh, should we go to the pub? It kind of did it. So, So I do think there will be that thing of, when it actually comes to it, people will be like, yeah, let's, let's go to back to palace. I miss it so much. So, mm. so I'm in two minds basically. And, and JC actually from an anthrop- anthropological yeah. um, uh, viewpoint. It's plain yeah. obvious. <laughs> it's absolutely simple. This one. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, um, we're missing the point. We're talking about bubbles, crystal palace fans. This is one big bubble. We, you know, there's no way that we can cross contaminate. We're just, we're just, you know, so I, I would have no problem about coming back. However, if they did only sanction 6,000 people, I think it would be important that we create rituals, right? And it would be those who can go to the game will be serenaded by all the other fans. Like they would stand in, in, in a line, you'd walk through them at social distance, but they'd applaud you. And you'd walk in and go, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going I'm to get you to win. And when you come out, Everyone's applauding you again if, if you win, but if you lose, you get the blame as a fan. <laughs> so then the next game you can't go, but the other the other fans can. So I've been thinking this through, and I can you know if Steve wants to talk, we can you know I can I can definitely share my views. Wow. on Twitter would be amazing after that. It'd be fantastic. In, in yeah. terms of atmosphere, though, as well, which is what I don't quite understand from the broadcasters, and we've all been to League Cup games at Palace. There's, there's nothing worse than being at Sellers Park with five and a half thousand yeah. people there. Yeah. And which, it, but, may, but maybe you have to get really, really drunk before. What, more drunk than normal? Like, well, what happens about the, the onerous role, John? Of course I will. <laughs> what, 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 what would happen about the Holmesdale um, fanatics? Well, I don't know. I mean, Steve Parrish is slightly in throat. I mean, they, they simply wouldn't be able to sit together. I mean, the, the, the problem is as well, you know, the, the players. And they've been warned about this twice by the Premier League. For the first week, the players with elbow bumping and, and high-fiving. And now the players celebrate with the full-on hugs and kisses <laughs> again. And, yeah. it, it, you know, you know what it's like. If the first game back, we score with a minute to go, I, I'm not going to just stand there and look yeah. at somebody a seat away from me and just go for an elbow bump. I'm going to be all... If they're a complete stranger or not, I'm going to be all over them. I'm going to be piling down. So that's... Yeah, that was one of the arguments about pubs. Or you can't trust working class people to go back in pubs because they'll have drink and suddenly start hugging each other and singing Irish songs. And that's, I think that's what will happen in grounds. I don't think there'll be alcohol, and it'll be the atmosphere will be so muted that the broadcast will be going. Actually, this is just as bad as yeah. I'd rather have artificial sound. To be honest, I, I, we're, we're all desperate. None of us can wait for that magic time when we we can all queue up for ages to get in and be cursorily searched by a steward. Yeah, I imagine the searches are going to be much, much more reluctant now than they have been in the past. So we all want to get back, but I, for the sake of three months, I'm happy to. I mean, I've, I've for the, for two weeks before the pubs opened, I was telling everyone I'd be at the Porson's Arms with a sleeping bag until it opened at nine o'clock in the morning. 
when push comes to shove, I just didn't, you know, mm. my son's anxious about it, Ali's got immune yeah. issues, and when push comes to shove, I, I haven't been there yet, as I just thought, no, this, yeah, is yeah. Not, this is not right. For the sake of sitting on my own in a taped-off table, enjoying a pint, it, it felt... It just felt too early, to be honest. And then mm. I tried to go mm. to another pub, and 10 minutes into the, the, the what, why do you want my name and address? Why do I have to scan? I haven't got a thing on my phone to scan. What am I doing? I, in the end, I just, well, I'll, make, I'll go home and get a, I'll get a can and take it home because it was just too, too much trouble. I, I think if, if, if you get fans back and you're asking them, you remember that first game against at Tottenham in the new stadium when there were three types of sniffer dog, and I still mm. don't know what the third type was for, and you had to go through four different turnstile <laughs> things showing your ticket. If it's if it's like that at Palace, if you have to go through like four separate zones and you have to have your temperature taken, I don't think fans will want to do that. I think fans will want to, a lot of fans, especially older fans, will want to wait until they feel it's safe. And even then, uh, I, you know, if theatres and comedy clubs can open from the 1st of August, I think it'll be ages before you can convince punters that it's a safe environment for, for them to go back to and, and and until there is a vaccine i think there'll be a lot of people a lot of palace fans and you i mean you jd involved traveling quite some distance as well so that there's more risk there you've got a small baby at home so you know if you can watch it on telly why would you want to go back i mean that's the big problem is that from when the start of next season it will go back every palace game won't be on telly yeah. So then you will be desperate to go and there will be fans who go, no, I need to be at the games. I have to be at the games. Come with me. Indeed. I always suspected you had a sleeping bag at the Porsons and that just confirmed yeah, yeah, yeah. it for me. Yeah, um, let's... I'm not a lightweight. I take, I take my drinking seriously, JD. Mm. Oh, I know. I know that. <laughs> um, let's wrap up there. Uh, in part four, we're going to do a super quick preview of the Wolves game. Welcome back to the final part of this week's five-year plan podcast. Part four is our preview part. It's Wolves on Monday, penultimate game of the season in mid-July. And we've had a question, Chloe, from Rabbit Reed. Hi, Rabbit. Rabbit Reed says, with with PVA out, does Mitchell start against Wolves? Well, here's the worry. Mitchell should start, but Adama Traore would be my counter. Um... Earlier on this season, we when we played Wolves, did we draw, draw with them? Yeah, they equalised right, right they at the end. Equalised yeah. right at the end. But I thought Adama Traore was absolutely pants. And all these guys around me were going, oh, Adama Traore is sick. And I was like, no, he's just fast. He's yeah. got nothing at the end. But then obviously um, Nuno has done that amazing work and just slowed everything down. And since he's come back from lockdown, he has been mm. outstanding. Yeah, amazing to watch. Every his decision making in the final third has just improved tenfold, and I would be very, very fearful if uh, Mitchell was that they, they just isolate him. They see him as the weak link, and then if they want to swap halfway through the game, put a Damatari against Joe Ward. Uh, you know, a, a, a more limited right back. That would be my concern. But he's going to have to start because he's always all we've got. Yeah. And I really hope that he thrives. The only slight uh, thing that would work for us there is that um, Troy does seem to rotate in and out of the squad quite a lot, so might potentially be on the Which bench. Which I find difficult. interesting. I, I don't know why. I think he's absolutely. I think he's their best player. I agree. I don't know if it's a management thing, sort of managing or something. I mean, JC, there... it's 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 called cool having a squad. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I've never heard of that. Sorry. Yeah. 
<laughs> there are, I mean, there are. Gyro could potentially go there. Schluppy is back from injury. Could Will yeah. Roy maybe go with a slightly more experienced player? There? They're, they're two. They're two games. PVA could be out for six months, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no other option but to play Mitchell for the next two games. He has to be ready for next season. If if you're looking at the transfer market now with PVA out for six months, I'd be saying, right, we've got Mitchell, we've got um, Gyro, and then we've got the Schlupp as a backup if need be, right? So we've got that position covered. But Mitchell, we have to give him these two games. Um, so when it starts in September, he he knows I've I've really had two and a half games or whatever in the Premiership I can play. Mm. And and your point about I think Tur- who he's going to be facing up against it's like PV, um, uh, Juan Basaka when his first game was against who was it Hazard or Tottenham? Or, yeah, yeah, Tottenham. Yeah. So you know, talk, and he just closed them mm. out. So just give it to him. I, let 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 him. Sorry, sorry. I I think sometimes if you just throw uh, a new player into it head first, they have to be more instinctive rather than able to sort of overthink yeah. or overanalyze the game. So it it could be good for him. This game will be harder than Man U and Chelsea. Yeah, I agree. Because they yeah. they they are such a clever mm-hmm. team, and they have got such. The, the, this is the it's the best Wolves team ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, you know, and and you know, so they they can out they they're foxes. The whole lot of them. They you, you know, and the, the, that's what's going to be harder. I I, I would put, kind of put my money on us losing over yeah. um, us. You know, losing against Man U, for example. The only hope, John, is that they're not—they're not particularly physical wolves. They—they they, they like to try and play football rather than get involved in a in a battle, and they do try and get forward. So I think there's a possibility of goals. I, I think Mitchell will have to start. I think it's the interesting one will be who Roy picks to play in front of him. Whether he put—I mean, you would argue for maybe putting McCarthy in front of him on, on the left to protect him. I suspect he might as close as start with Andros. Andros would be the one that would would protect him most probably well but not in front of Mitchell because that'd be the wrong side well, I mean, yeah. no yeah, I think you'd have, you'd have to play Jimmy yeah. Mack to talk him through I think you'd have to have him there to talk him through the game uh, on, on that on, on that side the, the, the big challenge he has PVA is probably the top five left back attacking yeah. left backs in the league in the league he's that good right and he's a goal threat um and Mitchell hopefully can also embrace some of that to his game as well that would be really exciting if he if he has the kind of guts just to go I'd love to see him attacking see if he can take on players that would be amazing but I think it's really key that if he does start we don't expect too much from him um you know it, it'll be a tough game as you say if he gets through it try and manage him I think that's the that's the main thing and I, I just something just um, popped into my head on Andros. Sorry to to add this here, but um, Andros played in front of Aaron Wan-Bissaka his first game of, of um, mm. his first sort of breakthrough game at Selhurst. And I remember remarking after saying how incredible Andros was that yeah. game because he just yeah. bossed Aaron about. And and Wan-Bissaka was he was amazing and he took he took it all on board and 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 was a very sort of, it was a very functional performance. So yeah, Andros would be my pick in front of him. Yes, well, we'll if we're happy to play him on the left. Well, yeah, which he has done for Palace before. So we'll see. We'll see what yeah. happens. Um, and then we will be back to do another full pod after the Wolves game. Of course, there'll be a post-match pod for the patrons. And then a the week after that, it's the final podcast of the season. And then we've got no. about a five-minute break and we're back for the next season, uh, <laughs> which is going to be great. Um, so, JC, thanks for returning to the pod. Great to have you back. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. And it's great to do a pod with Chloe as well. Chloe, it's been, it's been really great fun. 
Yeah, it's been absolutely amazing hearing your uh, your anthrop. Anthro- we all struggle with that word. <laughs> I know, I can't. You've been, you've been sick, John. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Chloe, great having you back on. Thanks so much for having me. And Kevin, just keep being you. The afterthought, yeah, thank you. <laughs> the afterthought. Worst wrestling name ever. Um, <laughs> we'll be back next week for another podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. We'll see you again soon. Podcast Network.